Hello, this is Danae Cox, and I'm an OT studying for the CHT exam. I am tonight going over the Purple Book, Chapter 22, Spinal Cord Injury, CNS, and Brachial Plexus Injuries. Um, this is through the Hand and Upper Extremity Rehab, 4th edition. If you've listened to my other podcasts, you know that I am not going through the questions uh, one by one, but simply just the concepts. And um, I highly recommend that you get the book. There is no substitution um, for self-study. This is just to help aid you and something that I'm doing for myself so I can listen on the way to work in the morning. So um, hopefully I can help you too. Um, So Again, it's the Purple Book, Chapter 22, Spinal Cord Injury, CNS, and Brachial Plexus Injuries. So a C5 injury is the most commonly injured cervical level in quadriplegias, as well as the most commonly injured level of all spinal cord injuries. So again, C5 is the most commonly injured cervical level for C5. spinal cord injuries. In the spinal cord, gray matter is divided into dorsal, lateral, and ventral horns. The dorsal horn receives sensory input and transmits to the brain. The lateral horn transmits motor input to visceral muscle. So these are like your lungs and your heart, the muscles that help you live. And then ventral, is going to transmit motor input to the skeletal muscle. So um, you have your afferent and efferent nerve pathways. The afferents carry the central nervous system inputs, and then the efferents carry the central nervous system outputs. So the afferent brings the information into the spinal cord, um, and then efferent comes from the spinal cord and goes out. So uh, a good way to remember this is afferent arrive, AA, and efferent exit, EE. Another way to remember um, the dorsal versus ventral horns is um, for the dorsal horn, you can remember the acronym SAD, S-A-D, sending, sensory sending afferent fibers to the dorsal horn. So again, SAD, sensory sending afferent fibers to the dorsal horn. And for the ventral roots, you can remember the acronym MOVE, motor function by ventral roots with efferent fibers. So again, move, motor function by ventral roots with efferent fibers, okay? So I know to me that was kind of a hard concept. It just is a lot of memorization. So, you know, again, you have your spinal cord, you're looking at your dorsal and ventral roots. What comes out dorsally is going to be your afferent nerve, which the afferent nerve is the part that receives the sensory input from the body, right? From the skin. And then you have your uh, ventral root 
and this is going to be your efferent nerve or um, the information is sent from the spinal cord down to the muscles from the ventral cord. So hopefully that helps clear that up. Paresthesia versus paralysis. Paresthesia is sensory disturbances due to damage to the dorsal sensory tracts. Okay, so remember the dorsal sensory tracts is um, an afferent nerve, so it's information being received from the skin and sent to the uh, spinal cord. So paresthesias, that's a sensory disturbance, all right? So paralysis, though, is a loss of motor function, so it's no longer working. And so this is going to be due to an injury to the ventral horn neurons of the spinal cord. So remember, ventral horn is where the spinal cord sends the information from um, to the muscles to tell the muscles what to do, all right? So if it's paralysis, it's an injury to the ventral horn. If it's paresthesias, it's an injury to the dorsal sensory tracts. For the spinal cord levels, uh, so function is based on the ASIA, A-S-I-A, classification system, which is a scale based on completeness of a spinal cord injury. All skeletal muscles below the level of injury are paralyzed. If a patient has a C1 to C3 injury, they will be ventilator dependent. An appropriate orthotic is going to be a resting hand orthosis, which is beneficial to prevent hand contractures. For a patient with uh, a C4 spinal cord injury, this is going to include shoulder function. So everything below that is going to be uh, paralyzed. The patient with a C4 injury can use their head for electronic controls like sip and puffs and mouse sticks, but they have no function of the upper extremity elbow, wrist, hand, um, or the lower extremities. An appropriate adaptive equipment for a C4 spinal cord injury patient is a mobile arm support to assist with feeding as well as a mouse stick. So remember, C4 function is shoulder, so they can use a mobile arm support um, because they can use their deltoids to bring it over uh, to help them feed themselves with a mobile arm support. For C5 spinal cord injury level, so remember this is the most commonly injured, and a C5, the function are the elbow flexors. Everything below that is not working. So an appropriate adaptive equipment for C5 injury is a long Wanchek rider. Um, C5 is also the first spinal cord level that can operate a joystick. They can do a power wheelchair by using the biceps with a T-shaped handle. Uh, for a C5 injury, a dorsal wrist support orthosis is beneficial to support the wrist due to extreme weakness and can also serve as a universal cuff attachment. So remember, C5, they're going to have elbow flexors, so now they can feed themselves. If they have a universal cuff, 
They can um, bring it to their mouth and feed themselves. They can also use the biceps. They can co-contract. So even though they don't have triceps, they can still um, grade their extension by co-contracting the biceps. So these guys with C5 injuries really can do a lot. And I would encourage you to look up a YouTube video of uh, how functional they can be because it'll really surprise you. Um, C6 spinal cord level will have um, wrist extension. And so appropriate adaptive equipment for these guys continues to be the universal cuff, built up handles, and a D-ring wash mitt. You can give this patient a wrist-driven flexor hinge orthosis. This can be used to facilitate the functional use of wrist tenodesis. Because wrist extension is enabled, the patient can use tenodesis to assist with writing and to grasp and release objects. It's very important that um, passive composite wrist with finger extension should be avoided at all times because this could overstretch the flexors and decrease the tenodesis power. Instead, you should stretch and have the patient perform functional tasks in this tenodesis pattern. When a patient is attempting a transfer, they should support themselves with the elbow extended, the wrist extended, and in a fist position. Placing the hands in a fist will prevent claw hand deformity as well as protect the tenodesis. So think about it. If they push with their palm, this is going to overstretch the flexors. So anything that the patient is doing with wrist extended, they need to have their fingers flexed. Some tendon transfer options for a C6 uh, spinal cord injury. Because they will have wrist extension and all the function above C6, which includes elbow flexion, um, but they will not have the triceps because that's innervated by C7 or the digital flexors, which is innervated by C8. So appropriate tendon transfers for a C6 is going to be your posterior deltoid to the triceps transfer for elbow extension. They can complete a brachioradialis transfer to the flexor pollicis longus to restore lateral pinch. An ECRL to the FDPs for finger flexion and also for a C6, a, a transfer option is pronator teres transfer to the FPL for thumb pinch. So just to review that, um, the C6 tendon transfer options, you're gonna look at um, trying to restore elbow flexion, pinch, and a functional grasp. I'm sorry, elbow extension, pinch, and a functional grasp. So to restore elbow extension, they can do a posterior deltoid transfer to the triceps um, to restore lateral pinch. They can do a brachioradialis transfer to the FPL or a pronator teres transfer to the FPL. And then to restore finger flexion, they can take the ECRL and transfer it to the FDPs. 
For C7 spinal cord injury, the function that they have preserved is elbow extension. So this is where, um, this is the first level that a sliding board is an appropriate transfer because they can use their triceps to transfer independently. For C8, they will have their finger flexors intact. T1, they will have small finger abduction and an appropriate adaptive equipment for a T1 injury is a dressing stick. And T2 to T10 is gonna be independent with ADLs due to good trunk control, upper extremity strength, and coordination. <clears throat> Tendon transfers and functional electrical stimulation are only appropriate for patients with good supple hands, not contractures, or someone that is non-compliant. Tendon transfers are not ideal with patients that have athetosis or dystonia. The fluctuating tone can lead to overcorrection and the effects of the transferred tendon can be unpredictable. Functional elect electrical stimulation um, in current spinal cord injury research says that it can improve hand function for an incomplete spinal cord injury. It can reduce spacity of the muscle tone. It can decrease loss of bone mass. And it, uh, FES can reverse muscle atrophy. And again, um, this is more appropriate for incomplete spinal cord injury. <clears throat> Some things that you have to worry about um, with spinal cord injuries is autonomic dysreflexia. This is where the blood pressure rises quickly and could lead to a stroke. Some signs and symptoms of autonomic dysreflexia include headache, flushed face, clammy skin below the level of injury, and sweating above the level of injury. This is typically associated with a spinal cord injury higher than a T6 level. And autonomic dysreflexia can be caused by a noxious stimulus leading to a sympathetic hyperactivity response. This can include pain. So you want to check the abdominal binder. Is it too tight or are, are there any clothing too tight? Does the patient have pressure ulcers? Uh, do they have a UTI? Is the skin being pinched somewhere? And sometimes even the functional e-stem can um, irritate them enough. So you need to be very conscious of um, the signs and symptoms of autonomic dysreflexia. Spasticity. The upper motor neuron damage of the brain. Um, sorry, spasticity is caused due to an upper motor neuron damage of the brain's primary motor cortex. The muscles lack voluntarily control and um, spinal reflex activity irregularly stimulates the muscles. Brown-Sequard syndrome is where one side of the spinal cord is damaged. So the motor and proprioceptive deficits will be on the side of the lesion but there will be loss of sensitivity on the contralateral side. So again, with Brown-Sequard syndrome, it is a lesion on only one side of the spinal cord. Motor and proprioceptive deficits will be on the side of the lesion. However, 
the patient will have loss of sensitivity on the contralateral side. If a patient has central cord syndrome, there will be damage to the central aspect of the spinal cord, and it's often in the cervical region. The patient will present with upper extremity weakness greater than lower extremity weakness. So it seems reversed. For an anterior cord syndrome, proprioception is preserved with variable loss of motor function and pain and temperature sensation. So with anterior cord syndrome, their um, loss of motor function is going to vary. It's gonna be all over the place, but they're also going to have um, deficits with pain and temperature sensation. Um, but proprioception will be preserved. In central cord syndrome, this is where damages to the central aspect of the spinal cord, often in the cervical region, um, but unlike a traditional spinal cord injury where everything below the level of injury is paralyzed, this is actually in a central cord syndrome, the symptoms are reversed where the patient will have more upper extremity weakness than lower extremity weakness. Spinal shock occurs initially after a spinal cord injury and may last up to six weeks post-injury. The signs and symptoms of spinal shock include hypotension, bowel and bladder reflexes cease, all somatic and visceral muscles below the level of injury become insensitive and paralyzed. Any neural function that doesn't return in 48 hours post-injury the paralysis is permanent. For wheelchair mobility after a spinal cord injury, um, a C5, C6 patient, they will have preserved bicep and wrist extension to use the folding or a rigid manual wheelchair with adaptations. So they may have brake extensions, padded wheelchair gloves, or wrist stabilizing orthoses. So now we're going to talk about a few other diagnoses. Um, so you have ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. This is also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. ALS is deterioration with upper and lower motor neuron symptoms. Muscle weakness and atrophy begin distally and progresses proximally. In the advanced stages, um, it involves the visceral muscles responsible for respiration, swallowing, and oral motor control. ALS has a rapid onset and is prevalent in men greater than 30 years old. ALS is fatal within five years of onset. Multiple sclerosis. This is a central nervous system disorder due to demyelinization. Um, with multiple sclerosis, lesions may occur in the upper and or lower motor neuron systems. It's dependent on where the effects, uh, it, it's dependent on where the lesions are on how uh, the symptoms will present. So it'll be different because the lesions can occur in the upper or lower motor neuron symptoms with MS. Symptoms may include spasticity, muscle weakness, ataxia, and sensory disturbances. 
MS symptoms can be exacerbated by heat, fatigue, or stress. And MS, uh, the symptoms can fluctuate between series of remissions and exacerbations. Thoracic outlet syndrome. You have two types. You have vascular or neurogenic. The neurogenic is uh, more common. It's 95% of thoracic outlet patients have neurogenic. Uh, for vascular, the signs and symptoms include pain, swelling, cyanosis, fatigue, heaviness of the arm or hand, visible distension of the subcutaneous veins in the upper extremity or neck. Vascular can be split up into a cause of either venous or arterial insufficiency. For venous, it results from compression of the axilloclavian vein resulting in thrombosis. For arterial uh, vascular TOS, this is the rarest. It is caused by friction of the first rib causing fibrosis and stenosis. For neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome, you can have true or disputed. Um, so true neurogenic will present with both motor and sensory symptoms. It'll be very concrete. But for a disputed neurogenic TOS, uh, it will be very nonspecific. There will be vague symptoms with negative clinical findings other than pain. There are several assessments for thoracic outlet syndrome. One is called the Elevated Arm Stress Test, or EAST. This is um, also known as the ROOS test, R-O-O-S. The arms are held in 90-degree abduction with 90-degree elbow flexion, and the patient opens and closes his or her fingers for three minutes. A positive test is when the patient is unable to maintain the position or complete for the three minutes. Another assessment for thoracic outlet syndrome is a lidocaine scaling block test. So um, if the patient has decreased symptoms after a lidocaine injection into the anterior scalene muscle, then this would indicate as a positive for TOS. Compression can occur um, in the interscaling triangle between the anterior and middle scalene. The costoclavicular space below the clavicle and above the first rib. And also, compression can be at the thoracopectoral attachment of the pec minor on the coracoid process. If a patient has pectoralis minor syndrome, they will have pain over the anterior chest wall near the pec minor attachment, as well as the axilla following a traumatic event in the anterior chest wall. Thoracic outlet syndrome would need to be rolled out. If a patient has a brachial plexus injury, it's important to know, was it in the upper trunk, middle trunk, or lower trunk? Remember our upper trunk brachial plexus is going to include C5 and C6. So this, this would affect their suprascapular, musculotaneous, and axillary nerves, as well as parts of the median nerve and radial nerve.
Injury to the upper trunk will inhibit shoulder abduction and external rotation and abduction. The patient will have um, the inability to perform overthrowing, overhead throwing and washing their hair. So let's review um, the muscles involved again with the brachial plexus injury of uh, the upper, upper trunk, which again is going to include C5 and C6. It's going to affect the suprascapular nerve, which remembers the suprascapular nerve innervates the supraspinatus and the infraspinatus. So that's where they're going to have that difficulty with flexion and um, external shoulder flexion and external rotation. It'll also uh, affect the musculotaneous nerve. This is going to innervate your biceps. Um, and the coracobrachialis, the brachialis, and the biceps brachii. C5 and C6 for an upper trunk brachial plexus will also include the axillary nerves. The axillary nerve uh, innervates the deltoid and the teres minor. So an injury would include a loss of 15 to 90 degrees of abduction. Upper trunk brachial plexus injuries also um, affect parts of the median and radial nerves. So you can see that this injury would be um, very devastating and it will, again, eliminate um, the ability to perform shoulder abduction and external rotation and abduction um, uh, activities or anything that involves reaching overhead. For a middle trunk brachial plexus injury, this is going to include the C7 spinal cord level. A lesion at this level is rare, but it will present with weakness in the triceps, radial nerve distribution, but it spares the brachioradialis. So, um, So again, um, for a C7 middle trunk brachial plexus injury, they, this is very rare. It's C7 level. The patient will have weakness in the triceps, radial nerve distribution, but it will spare the brachioradialis. For a C7 brachial plexus injury, it'll also include the upper subscapular nerve, which um, innervates the subscapularis, the thoracodorsal nerve, which innervates the lats, and the lower subscapular nerve, which innervates the subscapulus uh, and the teres major. For lower trunk brachial plexus injuries, this is going to include your C8 and T1. So this will have um, the ulnar nerve is the main one affected. The patient will present with weakness of the hand intrinsic muscles and sensory changes in the medial forearm. Also for a C8 T1 lower 
brachial plexus injury, the medial pectoral nerve will be uh, impacted and this innervates the pec major and minor. The medial brachial cutaneous nerve and also the medial antibrachial cutaneous. For, um, okay, so we're switching gears um, and looking at children assessments. So a two-point discrimination, you have to remember that this is only appropriate for patients that are nine years old or over. Um, the active movement scale grades motor function in the upper extremity. And um, this is really good for brachial plexus birth palsy because, and it's easy to use with um, infants because the therapist uses small toys to encourage the, the, the desired motion. And then each motion is graded on a seven point scale. The active movement scale tests specific joints um, and zero to four points are given for active range of motion in a gravity eliminated position and five to seven points are given for active range of motion against gravity position. So again, the active movement scale grades um, specific joints, motor function in the upper extremity. It's good for brachial plexus birth palsy. Um, it's good for, for small children, including uh, infants and toddlers, because they use small toys to encourage the, the desired motion. It uses a seven-point scale with zero to four points given for active range of motion completed in a gravity-eliminated position and five to seven points for active range of motion against gravity. The modified mallet classification system assesses global motor function in children as opposed to testing isolated muscles. So um, this is also graded one to five with one no function and five full function. The house classification of hand function. So this is, there are eight levels and this is basically like how well does the patient use their hand? And again, this is a children's assessment. So you would um, try to give them a toy. Level one for the house classification of hand function scale is where the patient does not use their hand at all. Level two would be that they use as a stabilizing weight only. So they use their hand to like try to try to hold the toy, but they just basically push on it. <clears throat> a level three, the patient can hold onto the object placed in hand. So this is like you give the baby a rattle and they're able to um, hold it in their hand, but they're unable to do anything else with it. A level four, the patient can hold the object and stabilize for use by the other hand. So now they're holding it in one hand, but they're also um, playing using the other hand to play with it. A level five, the patient can actively grasp the object by themselves and hold it, but they're still weak. A level six, they can grasp the object by themselves and stabilize it well. A level seven, they can 
Um, grasp the object independently, stabilize it well, and manipulate it against the other hand. A level eight, the patient can perform bimanual activities easily. And a level nine, the patient uses the hand completely independently. For herbs palsy, this is going to be a C5 to C6 nerve root disorder affecting shoulder abduction, external rotation, elbow flexion, and supination. Typically, internal rotation contractures occur. Uh, the strong internal rotator muscles include the latissimus dorsi and teri majors. Therefore, they can be transferred to the greater tuberosity to now function as external rotation abductor and abductors to improve functional use. After this type of transfer, an airplane splint is required post-op. Post-polio syndrome, the signs and symptoms include extreme lethargy, progressive muscle weakness and atrophy, and the patient will complain of sharp and burning muscle pain. Horner's syndrome, this is the loss of sympathetic ganglion function after an avulsion to the T1 nerve root. The signs and symptoms include meiosis, which is papillary constriction, enophthalmus, which is inset orbit, anhydrosis, which is a dry eye, and ptosis, which is a drooping eyelid. For a traumatic brain injury, after one year post-injury, a third of the survivors will require assistance with ADLs. Possible complication of a TBI is heterotopic ossification. Residual limb deformities following a TBI include contractures, muscle imbalances, movement disorders, and spasticity, and of course, cognitive Okay, so um, let's talk about the difference between upper motor neuron versus lower motor neuron dysfunction. So if a patient has an upper motor neuron uh, dysfunction, then they are going to have spasticity. There's going to be presence of the Babinski sign, exaggerated reflexes, and autonomic dysreflexia. Examples of an upper motor neuron Dysfunction is Parkinson's. For a lower motor neuron dysfunction, the patient will have absent or diminished deep tendon reflexes. They will be flaccid, have muscle atrophy, muscle fasciculation or twitching, and spinal muscular atrophy. ALS involves both the upper motor and lower motor degeneration. So for upper motor neuron, you're gonna have your spasticity, your autonomic dysreflexia, exaggerated reflexes. For lower motor neuron, you're going to have absent or diminished reflexes, you're gonna be flaccid, you have muscle atrophy um, and um, um, muscle fasciculations or twitching present. The axillary nerve is the most vulnerable to injury with shoulder dislocations. 
This will result in deltoid atrophy and weakness and paresthesias down the lateral nerve. Because remember, um, with the axillary nerve, it innervates the deltoid and teres minor. So they will have loss of 15 to 90 degrees abduction. <clears throat> the um, Another side note with the axillary nerve is it's going to be um, involved with a C7 injury which is the middle trunk, the posterior cord, and that will branch off to the axillary nerve. The suprascapular nerve is most often injured during a traction or compression injury. This results in shoulder pain and weakness with external rotation and abduction. So again, um, the suprascapular nerve is gonna innervate the supraspinatus and infraspinatus. This is going to be an um, upper trunk lesion, C5, C6. <clears throat> and um, last, we have the spinal accessory nerve. And an injury to this will present with drooping shoulder girdle and flat upper trap muscle. The patient with a spinal accessory nerve will have weakness in the serratus anterior, the trap, and the sternocleidomastoid. <clears throat> the, um, we talked at the beginning that the Asia levels for spinal cord injury, um, we are, uh, it talks about you know, what level they are injured is what function they have preserved. And then everything below that level, if it's a complete SCI, will um, be paralyzed and lost. And so for C5, they will have preserved elbow flexors. For C6, they will have wrist extension intact. For C7, they will have their triceps or elbow extension. For C8, their finger flexion will be intact. And at T1, the fifth finger abduction. So lastly, we have the modified Ashworth scale, which is um, used for grading spasticity. And um, what this is, is... Um, Sorry, I'm looking in the book for the actual scale because I did not write it down. Let's see, it says modified Ashworth scale for grading spasticity is page 482. Okay, here we go. So um, for a level zero, it means that there's no increase in muscle tone. A level one, there will be slight increase. There will be like a catch and release or minimal resistance at the end of the range of motion. For a one plus, there will be a slight increase in muscle tone, um, but it'll be um, present through less than half of the range of motion. So level one is just at the end range, a level one plus is um, less than half. A level two on the modified Ashworth scale for grading spasticity 
you will see more marked increase in muscle tone through most of range of motion, um, but the affected parts still easily move. A level three, there will be a considerable increase in muscle tone and passive range of motion is difficult. For a level four on the modified Ashworth scale for grading spasticity, the affected parts um, will be rigid inflection or extension. And that is all I have for chapter 22, spinal cord injury, um, central nervous system, and brachial plexus injuries. Have a good evening.